Well, this week we are in week three of our series, Thriving Where You Are. And through this series, we're following the journey of Joseph and the escapades that he endeavors to live through. Uh, I say live through because that's really what he has to do as he travels to Egypt and he is a slave and then he is in prison. And this week we find Joseph in prison and he's waiting. And so we're looking at Joseph in prison and some things that happen, and he finds himself waiting. And and the reality is we all have to wait sometimes. We all find ourselves in situations, whether they're forced upon us or we choose to wait. Um, And we usually get stuck in this question of what do we do now? How do we respond to those trials of waiting? And we find that our attitude and our perspective of things in that moment of waiting bears a big part of the outcome and how everything works out and our actions. And so we're going to explore Joseph's attitude, we're going to explore Joseph's perspective and how it impacts our lives today as we walk through Genesis 40 and continue the story with Joseph. But before we do that, we're going to pray and we're going to sing together a little bit more. So please join me in prayer this morning. Holy God, we are so grateful for your presence in our lives in and through all things, whether it is a frigidly cold morning or it is the hottest day, we know that you are with us through all things, in all things, and we are grateful. God, we ask that you would open our minds and our hearts and our very being to your presence this day, that your spirit would rest upon us that in reading your holy scriptures and singing songs that take us to you, Lord, we would experience you anew and that we would meet you here. It's in your son Jesus, our Savior's name, that we pray. Amen. I'm not always the best person to wait. Lines especially. Anybody else not good at waiting in line? I don't do well waiting in line. It may be an old military thing, feeling like I'm a cow and like going to the slaughter, but I don't do well in crowds. I don't do well waiting in line. And I was sitting in a um, doctor's office recently, and I realized I don't do well in waiting rooms either. Waiting rooms, not my strong suit. Um, and they, do, they try really hard to make you comfortable with their outdated magazines and, and um, their nice music and the and the, the toys that look like they have bad illnesses on them for the kids. But, um, you know, they, they really do. They try to make you feel welcome, um, although they could have donuts, but they don't. Um, I was thinking about some of the, some of the statistics that um, deal with waiting. And so I started looking it up, because that's what I do when I start to, my mind starts to wander when I'm bored, I start thinking about things, and so I thought I'd share with, some of the, share with you some of the interesting statistics that I found. Did you know that half of Americans honk at the car in front of them if they are waiting for over 10 seconds at a green light? Any, is that any of you? Less than 10 seconds, like two seconds, Right. Yeah, checking your phone. Open screen. Yep, the guy behind me told me. All right, this is a big one um, about Gen Wires. Now, Gen Wires are people between 20 and 35, if you didn't know that. Gen Wires, 72% of Gen Wires push an already lit elevator button when they get onto an elevator in hopes that it'll close the door faster. 
Yeah, this is all based on a 2015 survey put, on, put together by Fifth, uh, Fifth Third. Um, and this is the big one, and this is really me. 96% of Americans, according to this study, so that's probably all of us but one, drink extremely hot beverages before they cool, knowing that they will burn their mouth, or eat extremely hot foods before they're cool enough to eat, knowing that they'll burn their mouth, and then do the thing, you know, that is me. My wife gets after me because, why don't you just wait two seconds until the food cools? Well, because I'm hungry. Is that anyone else? It should be everyone because, according to the survey, it's 96% of Americans who took this survey. I think that Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers said it best that the waiting is the hardest part, folks. It's the hardest part. Every day, every day, what's, how's it, anybody else know the song? Every day you see one more card. No? I can't be the only one who listens to Tom Petty. Oh, man, it's going to be a rough day. Not only are we cold on the outside, and we're not listening to Tom Petty. What kind of church are we? Oh. Some people call it immaturity, being impatient, right? We say that when someone is impatient, it's a negative thing. And that's usually how we talk about impatience as a negative thing. But then on the other side of the coin, we say that being impatient, is that, that same characteristic can be defined as a positive when we call it being motivated. Someone is highly motivated. You know, we say that someone is being naive. They just don't understand the situation. They don't understand, don't understand the way things, that things work here. That's not the way we do things. They're naive. Or are they driven? Are they being extremely purposeful in what they're doing? In Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University classes and, and in his books, um, he, he often says that one of the definitions of maturity is your ability to delay pleasure. And I really like that, that definition because it, it goes outside of the financial world and outside of the financial realms because it really defines this characteristic of our ability to wait, our ability to say, you know what, I'm just going to wait for this. You know, I'm going I'm to I'm say, not right now, but later. We're going to get there, and it will be better later. But sometimes those situations of later are, are caused by trials. They're caused by things that are outside of our control, things that we don't get to determine ourselves. And we're forced to wait. And then, really, the only thing that we get to choose is how we respond to that situation. And our response is really driven by our attitude. And, and I was reading a little book um, recently that, and, and a really neat story. It was written by Charles Edison. Now, Charles Edison is the son of Thomas Edison, the famous inventor Thomas Edison. And it was really about um, this idea of positive attitude. Now, I'm not, I'm not one to say that you know, a positive attitude is going to fix all your problems in life. That's not me. But I think positive attitude is important. But I just wanted to share some of this story because it's a true story about Thomas Edison written from the perspective of Charles Edison, his son. And it, the, story, or the, the, the story was called um, The Electric Thomas Edison. And it recounts a true story that happened in December. And it was a December evening. And they were at the plant. And someone yelled, fire. And, and a fire had started in the plant. 
And, and as, as the fire consumed everything, the, the packing compounds, the celluloids, the records, and the film, and everything flammable just went up, Charles couldn't find his father, and he was afraid, of course. Right? Where's dad? He's afraid, and he was very concerned, and, and he was first concerned for his safety, is what you, would, what you would expect, but then he says in the story, and I quote, with all of his assets going up in smoke, would his spirit be broken? He was 67 and no age to begin again. Then I saw him, him in the plant yard running toward me. This is Charles talking. And then, and then this is what Thomas Edison said. Where's mom? He shouted. Go get her. Tell her to get her friends. They'll never see a fire like this again. This is a true story. That's how Thomas Edison responded. Like, what a way to respond. His entire livelihood is burning down before him. His entire enterprise, all of his belongings, all of his inventions, all of his equipment, all of his money is burning down before him, and all he can say is, go get your mom and her friends. Like, they're never going to see a fire like this again? Talk about positive attitude. He could have responded in a variety of different ways. I could name a few that I can't say in church, but he didn't. Charles goes on in the story, and he talks, talks about the evening and then the next morning. And he says at 5.30 the next morning, there, when the fire was barely under control, um, Thomas Edison called all of his employees together, and he declared, we're rebuilding. 5.30 the next morning, the flames are still consuming everything. And he says, we're rebuilding. And he sent some of his employees out to uh, lease all of the machine shops in town. He sent an employee to the Erie Railroad Company to uh, lease a wrecking crane for demolition. And then he says, almost as an afterthought, he added, oh, by the way, anybody know where we can get some money? And later on, he explained and I quote, you can always make capital out of disaster. We just cleared out a bunch of old rubbish, but we'll build bigger and better on these ruins. And with that, Thomas Edison rolled up his coat into a pillow and fell asleep on the table. Situations happen in life that are beyond our control, and we have these moments of now what? What are we going to do now? And we're stuck waiting. And that's really where we find Joseph this morning in his story too. He was in prison. He was left in prison. With, with no future, no future in sight. And, and he's living day to day, meal to meal, night to night, waiting. And so we're going to pick up the story in chapter 40. If you'd like to follow along, it's on page 65 in your pew Bibles. And we're just going to start in verse 1 of chapter 40. Sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their master, the king of Pharaoh. 
Pharaoh was angry with his two officials, the cupbearer and the chief baker, and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, the same prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, and he attended them. After they had been in custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were being held in prison, had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. And when Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials, who were in custody with him in his master's house, why do you look so sad today? Why do you look so sad today? I think it's interesting that a prisoner would ask another prisoner why you look so sad today. Does that not seem like a silly question to ask someone? Hey, fellow inmate, why so glum? Glub, glub, glub. Perspective shapes attitude. And attitude impacts everything. Perspective shapes attitude, and attitude impacts everything. Joseph could have been bitter. He could have been bitter. He could have been jaded. He could have been angry. That's how we get. When the situation gets bad, sometimes that's what we do. We can get bitter. We can get jaded. We can get angry. But he doesn't. Why? Why isn't Joseph angry? Why does he seem like he's all, hey, guys, why the sad faces in prison this morning? Why aren't you happy to be here? See, the guy you want to slap on Monday morning who's too happy to be at work. Not that I would ever do that or want that because that's probably too bad. But let's be real. Why? Be so happy. Why isn't he mad? Not only did his family disown him, he was sold as a slave, he was in Potiphar's house, and then he was committed to prison for a crime he didn't commit. He had every reason to be upset. He had every reason to be mad, but he wasn't. Why? To know why, we have to remember where he was last week when we talked. And last week, we talked about how the Lord was with Joseph. And how that explained everything. The Lord was with Joseph. And for the author of the, in the context, in the time, just saying the Lord was with Joseph explained everything. Because the Lord in Greek, or in the, in the Hebrew, excuse me, the Lord Yahweh, Yahweh was a personal form of God. Understanding that God was personally with Joseph. As Jesus Christ is personally with us, as we experience the sustaining presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, personally connected with Joseph. That framed the mindset, that frames the whole story. And that gives a different perspective for Joseph. You see, Joseph had something that the other folks didn't have. Yahweh was with Joseph, personally. You see, in that perspective, changes things. It changes how you see things. And when you change how you see things, it shapes your attitude. You see, your attitude impacts your actions, what you intentionally do, but your attitude also impacts what you don't intentionally do. 
which is what I call our reactions. What Jesus says would be the state of your heart, the things that come from your heart. Now, I'm not talking about simply being an optimist, right? That Pollyanna, everything's going to be great. Yay! And I'm not talking about being a pessimist. Ugh, everything's horrible. And I'm not talking about being a, a, a realist. Oh, it's just the way the world is. I, I'm talking about your worldview. What you believe to be true about yourself, what you believe to be true about God, what you believe to be about true about everything and how you interact with it. If you understand that God is with you, and you understand and know that there's a relationship there that changes how you act in your world. But it also infuses your heart differently. And then your reactions come from your heart, as Christ says, the things that come from your heart. Paul says it like this in Philippians. He says, do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. Live clean, Innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. And I like this, I like this verse because Paul understood that we as, as people of faith live in a world of brokenness. We do. We live in a world of brokenness. And that means that, and he, he said, shining as, as bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. That means we have to live in the brokenness and still have this attitude of hope, this attitude and this perspective of hope. And so what that means is we have to have our self-understanding of who we are. As Genesis says, made in the image of God, the imago dei, who we are, created with intention, with purpose, beautifully formed, beautifully and wonderfully made. We have to have our self-understanding, but we also have to have our theology, what we know and understand about God, that we have been saved by grace through faith, who we've been recreated in Christ. What we know about ourselves and what we know about God then impacts our lives. We then become ambassadors of Christ, a new creation in Christ. It impacts our actions, our reactions, and everything in our world. And so when our perspective is on point and we have an attitude of gratitude towards God, we begin to see, as Joseph did, the needs of the people around us, not because we're just, hey, happy-go-lucky Christians, but because we understand our place in the world and we understand our relationship with God. And that's what Joseph did. And he saw these, these two men who were also in prison with him, the cupbearer and the baker. And he said, what's, why are you so angry? What, what's going on? Why are you so sad? And they said, we had dreams. We don't know what they mean. And Joseph said, well, dream interpretation is, is something God does. So why don't you tell me your dreams and I will, I'll, I'll, I'll see what God has to say about them. And so he does. And, and the cupbearer talks about his dream and these, these grapes and the cup. And, and Joseph says, okay, let me tell you what God says these dreams are about, this dream of yours uh, in three days, Pharaoh is going, to, is, is going to restore you back to your position. And when that happens, chief cupbearer, and this is what he says in, in verse 14 and 15, he says, but when all goes well, 
with you. Remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. For I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing to deserve being put in this dungeon. Now the chief cupbearer saw all this happen, and he was like, oh, good report. I like this guy. I want to get my dream interpreted too. And so he tells Joseph his dream, and Joseph is like, I got to tell you, your dream is not that good. God says that your dream really means that in three days you're going to be executed. And if you want to read the details, go into Genesis. But there's some young ears in the room, and they don't want to hear the gruesome details of how that turns out. But I want you to understand Joseph could have lied about it. Because that's kind of the big deal about that second interpretation. Because God told Joseph, this person's going to get executed. And he could have said, oh yeah, you're going to be restored too. Knowing that he wasn't. And no one would have been the wiser. And three days later, it would have been someone else's problem. But he was a man of integrity. And so he told the truth, no matter what the consequence, even though he had to live with this guy for three more days. And three days later, at Pharaoh's birthday party, everything he said came to pass. Everything that God said came to pass. The cupbearer was restored. The baker was executed, just as God said, because the interpretation of dreams belongs to God, as does the future. The future belongs to God. The future belongs to God. We don't like this fact. We don't like this reality. And I bet there are people in this room who would argue with me that this is not a fact or a reality, but I'm going to tell you that it is. Because we think that we control the future. Just look at our investment portfolios and you'll understand that we think we control the future. I looked at my last quarter statement and I know I don't control the future. <sighs> We believe often that our effort and our choices will control the future. When I got out of the military and left industry to pursue education and went to college, I thought going to college to be a teacher would help me to get a teaching job and that making those choices would control my future. As you can see, I am not a school teacher anymore, so did I control my future? Maybe, maybe not. It's debatable, isn't it? We think that our effort and our choices control our future, but Joseph's story points us to a different reality, and that reality is hard to define because it's really God's divine mystery. Joseph's story points us to God's divine ministry. You see, the cupbearer and the baker in this story, their dreams are really irrelevant. They don't mean a whole lot other than to point to God and God in the story. But them in the story take us to this understanding that they are not fated as if, as if they were predestined to a future, as if everything was settled in their life because there were variables in play that changed the situation. And so the cupbearer and the baker are not fated in the story. But they're not free either, as if they're completely free, as if they could decide. 
And so if they're not predestined and they don't have free will, what do they have? And herein lies the problem. Because now we bridge upon a theological argument that has been going on since Protestantism has divided. Predestination and free will. All wrapped up in God's mysterious ways. But what rings true through it all is that God's purpose happens regardless. Regardless of the theology behind it. I love the way that the author of Proverbs 19.21 says it. You can make many plans, but the Lord's purpose will prevail. Divine mystery, God's mysterious ways, what is, is what we want to know in my mind. It's what we, we want to know and understand. For me, it's often those things that, it's often those things that I, I say I'll understand one day, but I don't know right now and I can't articulate it. I can't, I can't articulate it. But someday I'll understand it. God does not have for me to know it. Often in times of struggle and tragedy and trial, it's, it's the response to that, that, that how. Like, how is God going to use this for good? When, when, it's, when I'm told that God can use all things for good and I'm stuck in that moment I can, and I say, how in the world can God use this for good? That moment... And that answer is God's divine mystery. I don't know it now, but I don't, and I don't have to know it now. It's that which we take on faith, that God will use it for good, even though we don't know what it is at this moment. And yet, still, there are times... There are still times when human action is required for God's plan and God's purpose to be fulfilled. Because God's purpose often requires our action. God's purpose often requires our action. Three days later, the cupbearer is restored and the baker is executed. And verse 23 ends like this. The chief cupbearer, however did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Joseph had asked the cupbearer, please remember me. Remember me when all goes well with you. It's very similar earlier in Genesis when Joseph's mother, uh, on the first Sunday of the series, we talked about this toxic family relationship. Joseph's mother was, was infertile, Rachel, and and she pleaded with God earlier in Genesis. And she said, remember me, God, in a very similar way in the Hebrew. Remember me in my infertility. Joseph pleads in a similar way. See, Joseph is faithful, and yet he's forgotten. But he's not alone. Never alone. He's faithful, and yet he's forgotten, but he's never alone. You see, Joseph doesn't know what's going to happen. He doesn't know if the cupbearer is going to remember him. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He doesn't know what comes next. 
He's stuck in a moment of waiting. Every day waking up, is this the day? I don't know. Is this the day? I don't know. Joseph doesn't know. The cupbearer, he doesn't care. He's moved on. And that is the same tension that we have to endure as well when we're forced to wait. So what you put your trust in determines your hope. What you put your trust in determines your hope. You see, we all have felt the hurt of abandonment. Joseph is, being, is, is abandoned at this point, stuck waiting. He's been not only abandoned by his family, he's been abandoned by Potiphar, he's been abandoned by the people he has helped in the prison. We've all been abandoned in our lives by different people, groups. Maybe it's our families that have abandoned us, our loved ones in some way, where we have been hurt by abandonment. Maybe it is our work situations that have left us feeling abandoned. Maybe it's our social group, our friends. Maybe it's even our church. Maybe you feel abandoned by church. Abandonment leaves a deep sense of hurt. No one likes feeling alone. And it's easy to become bitter and jaded. To become bitter and jaded because we've all been burned. We've all felt like we've had advantage taken of us. And we all feel like we've been mistreated. And when we do, we begin to distrust people. And when we start to distrust people, we start to lose hope in those people. And when we start to lose hope in certain people, we start to lose hope in all people. And as we start to lose hope in all people, we start to distrust God. And as we start to distrust God, we start to disbelieve. What you put your trust in determines your hope. You see, what happens is when you put your full trust in people, I don't mean like, I trust you to pick me up from the airport, trust. I mean, I trust you with everything, trust. Your full trust in this is what existence is all about. I mean, the argument for religion versus humanism, that all there is is us. When you put your trust in people and you put your hope in humankind, and people fail because people fail, everyone fails, your hope fails, and that's why humanism never works. But when you put your faith in Christ and you put your hope in God, Christ never fails. Paul said in Colossians, since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. You see, we all, we all deal, we all deal with hurt, betrayal, mistreatments, or, or trials. What we must do is, like Joseph, turn our trials into trust in God. Trust that God has not abandoned us. Trust 
that God has never left our sides. One of my favorite authors is C.S. Lewis, and he wrote in the book Problems of Pain is that God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks in our conscience, and shouts in our pain. You see, regardless of our present situation, regardless of what we're going through in this moment, regardless of how we feel, God is good. All the time. And all the time, God is good. Regardless of our situation, regardless of what we endure, it doesn't change who God is and what God is doing. Our situation may be bad, it may be trying, it may hurt, but Christ is real. His sacrifice was final, and our new life is just as real. And there is hope, because God does hold the future. And so the thing that impacts it the most is our perspective, and how you frame your reality. Because your perspective of who you are and who God is and how you relate that to your life, your perspective shapes your attitude and your attitude impacts everything. Everything. Let's pray. God, work in our lives to shape our perspective to include you in everything. In every joy and in every sorrow, help us to frame our entire lives with your love and care. Let our attitudes reflect our trust in you. And may hope fill our lives as your purpose is accomplished in this world. It's in the name of Jesus, your Son, our Savior, that we pray. Amen.